Watch and listen to the talking news every day at 12 noon and 6 p.m. on Channel 96 Comcast Xfinity and Channel 30 Verizon Fios. It can also be heard Mondays and Tuesdays at 4.30 p.m. and Wednesday at 12.30 p.m. on Channel 9 Xfinity and Channel 29 Fios. Listen anytime on the BMC Podcast Network on SoundCloud and iTunes. Just search for the Belmont Media Podcast Network. And now on to the talking news. Pace and Park tradition continues by Joanna K. Zuvalis. 28 summers ago, Belmont resident Thomasina Olson started a summer tradition in Belmont, the Pace and Park Music Festival. She remembers in the early days, people didn't think it would succeed because so many people go away in the summer. But with support from fellow residents like Dr. David Alper, the tradition began and has continued. This year's season kicked off on June 20th with the Battle of the Bands, sponsored by Belmont Savings Bank. The winning band was Flip the Page. There was eight more there will be eight more concerts this season every Wednesday evening except on July the 4th. Concerts begin at 6:45 p.m. in July and 6:15 p.m. in August. Olson is excited to have Elia Brown back this year on August the 1st. It's been about 3 years since Brown performed at the Payson Park Music Festival. Another favorite band returning this year is Forever Fab on August the 22nd. Ralph and Sherry Jones sponsor the Kitty Concerts on Fridays at 10.30 in the morning, and that began on July the 6th. Sherry and I have been supporting the Payson Park Music Festival Kitty Concerts since the beginning. Tommy Olson should be commended for this contribution to Belmont. We think that it is wonderful that children can see live music performances, said Jones. On a hot day, Olson said, Payson Park is one of the coolest outdoor locations in Belmont because of the land formation coming down from the reservoir. Every year, Olson and her Payson Park Music Festival Board recruit sponsors for each of the concerts. There's a different sponsor for each concert every week. Payson Park was once the site of Payson Park Elementary School before it burned down in 1974. According to Alper, Payson Park was once in danger of being sold for residential development. Olson and another Payson Park neighbor, Linda Oates, were passionate about keeping the land as a neighborhood park. Alper said it was like a quiet rebellion with no pickets or petitions. They first started selling trees and benches and got the highway and fire department to help plant the trees and place the benches, he said. Olson started the summer concert series as a way to make the park part of the lives of people living in the community. Alper and his family sponsor a concert every year. It was one of the times where virtually every member of the community gets together for commonality, which is the music, said Alper. In the near future, Olson hopes to have a bandstand constructed at Payson Park. 
Town meeting approved $5,000 for community preservation funds for an architectural design study at the annual town meeting. Olson will seek community input to create a design that abutters can support. The bandstand will provide performers with coverage and electricity and protect their instruments, uh, instruments and equipment from sudden changes in the weather. A concrete slab for the performers was put in about 13 years ago, according to Olson, but the issue remains that last-minute cancellations due to weather are problematic and costly, according to Olson. The bandstand structures would go over the existing concrete slab and would have a woodland look to keep the area's park-like as possible. It would include an acoustical ceiling and have handicapped access. Once the design study is complete, the project will be costed out and Olson will come back to the CPA next year for project funding. If there is inclement weather, concerts are usually rescheduled. To be, uh, to be sure, to check the website at ppfm.org for cancellations. And now over to my colleague Thomas. Updates on High School Design by Angela Toma. On June 28th, the Belmont High School Building Committee, the School Committee, and Selectman Tom Caputo held a joint meeting to discuss updated schematic design plans and project costs for the proposed new grades 7 through 12 building. Shane Nolan, Senior Project Manager from Daedalus, gave an updated review on project cost. The estimated total budget is now $295.16 million. Approximately $236.65 million of this is construction cost, while the remaining $53.51 million is for furniture, equipment, project contingencies, administration costs, and design costs. The Massachusetts School Building Authority will partially reimburse Belmont for the cost of the school. The reimbursement rate is currently estimated at 40.66%. However, this rate will not be finalized until the building committee presents a project funding and scope agreement at the August 29th MSBA board meeting. If MSBA agrees to this rate, they then will grant an estimated $82.35 million to the town of Belmont for the high school building project. This will make Belmont responsible for the remaining $212.81 million. The town has already funded $1.75 million of this for the feasibility study and schematic design. The remaining $211.06 million will first have to be approved in a debt exclusion vote in November. If voters approve the debt exclusion, Belmont Town Meeting will then vote to appropriate the money. Nolan does not expect the estimated values to change drastically. The numbers will be finalized after the August MSBA board meeting. A ballot question at the November 6 state election will ask Belmont voters to either approve or disapprove a debt exclusion for the building. Brooke Trevis of Perkins and Will, the architect firm hired for the feasibility phase of the building project, presented an updated schematic design at the meeting focusing on the high school's northern elevation and interior. 
The updated plan uses red as the building's primary exterior color and a lighter gray for the field house. From the field house side, a passerby can see the exterior of a two-story music room as well as the theater. Since students will use this outdoor area for sports activities, Perkins and Will scrapped the idea of using metal paneling around the exterior, opting instead for a masonry material which is more durable. From the parking lot, passersby can see a loading dock which is where most of the service access to the building will be located. There will also be a gap between the lower school and the gym. Perkins and Will has suggested using this space as a basketball half-court. The current plans also call for using brick for most of the building's exterior while adding precast concrete components for detail and texture. From the west entrance to the high school, a student will see the upper school guidance and administration rooms to their right. To their left, they will see the entry to the music wing and theater. The idea is to spotlight Belmont's music program as people enter the building, Trivas said. Trivas showed the committee's 3D images of the library and cafeteria. The library has two distinct spaces. One will be closed off for more focus study, while the other will be more open and can be used for team spaces and group study. This open portion overlooks Clay Pond and the cafeteria. The cafeteria is a large open space. The idea is to make it feel welcoming, Trivas said. There will be classrooms located above it, but they will be enclosed to keep noise from the cafeteria out. Trevis also went over what the typical corridor might look like in the new high school. The current idea is to have a wedge of furnished space outside the classrooms. There will be a distinct separation between these spaces and where students should walk down the hallways. This distinction was important to the Belmont Fire Department for safety concerns. The next proposed building committee meeting is July 19th. And now over to Max. Thanks, Thomas. Celebration of Reform by Rob Carter. Advocates for criminal justice reform gathered at the Concord District Court June 22nd to celebrate the passage of legislation expanding the use of restorative justice practices in the Commonwealth. The event was hosted by the activist group Committees for Restorative Justice and was specifically celebrating the addition of Chapter 276B to Massachusetts General Law, which offers restorative justice as a method of addressing certain crimes. Restorative justice takes the criminal justice process outside of the courtroom and instead has both the victims and the criminal offenders sit down together to discuss the impact of a crime and arrive at a resolution on how that wrong can be corrected. The state law requires, quote, an offender's acceptance of responsibility for their actions and supports the offender as they make repair to the victim or community in which the harm occurred, unquote. Not every crime is eligible for restorative justice under the new law, which excludes most violent crimes from consideration. Middlesex District Attorney Marion Ryan said that what made restorative justice a beneficial tool for someone in her position was its ability to create lasting change. Quote, what I have never seen in a courtroom that I have seen in restorative justice is real transformation, Ryan said. Ryan said that in restor uh, restorative justice circles, 
she, for the first time, saw people appreciate the impact of their actions and realized that they needed to change their behavior to fix the problems they had caused. By personalizing the response to a crime, Ryan said, restorative justice helps the offender take responsibility for their actions and ownership over the process to make things right. Quote, the cookie-cutter approach to criminal justice does not work, unquote, Ryan said. We need to look at individuals. But it wasn't just activists and defense attorneys who were celebrating the bill's passage. Local police forces also came to show their support for the restorative justice approach. Arlington Police Chief Fred Ryan spoke on behalf of a group that included Acton, Arlington, Bedford, Boxborough, Burlington, Cambridge, Carlisle, Concord, Groton, Hudson, Lexington, Lincoln, Littleton, Maynard, Newton, Stowe, Sudbury, Wayland, Wellesley, and Winchester. Fred and Mary and Ryan are not related. Quote, I was a skeptic, and boy, I'll tell you, I was wrong, Fred Ryan said. He said that starting his career during the, quote, tough on crime, unquote, movement made him dubious of restorative justice until he saw it in action and saw the statistics behind its successes. Restorative justice results results in lower recidivism and higher rates of victim satisfaction, according to a study by University of Minnesota professor Mark Umbright, published in the Western Criminology Review. The elephant in the room is is this is soft on crime, Fred Ryan said. But the reality is it's a heck of a lot easier as a young offender to go down to the district court with your parents and a checkbook, pay the victim witness fees and whatever other fees, and get attached nowadays, and you're through the circular doors at the front of the courthouse and the case is over. The Arlington police chief said not only was restorative justice effective, it was a more challenging process for first-time offenders because it held them accountable for their actions. Fred Ryan also emphasized restorative justice's role in leveling the playing field for young people who, he said, received different punishments based on class. By allowing restorative justice programs to be used in place of the traditional justice system, Fred Ryan said young people got the opportunity to correct bad behavior without that behavior ruining their future. Over to you, Bob. Thanks, Max. Cross Street resident finds smoke grenade in basement. <clears throat> Excuse me. According to Belmont Police Sergeant Benjamin Maylott, a homeowner on Cross Street found a cardboard cylinder containing a military smoke grenade when he was cleaning his basement on June 20th. Mayhart helped remove it from the home and placed it on the front lawn for the Cambridge Police Bomb Squad to dispose of. Mayhart said he knew exactly what it was from his military training with the National Guard. It was still in its original packaging with the safety pin in it. It does not contain any high explosives and would not cause something to blow up. They are primary, primarily used for signaling when they set off smoke for helicopters to land, he said. Mayhart said it may have belonged to a previous homeowner who may have been a veteran of the Vietnam era and forgot about it until a new homeowner found it 29 years later. It's not uncommon. We've had people find things in their homes before, such as old ammunition and an old gun. We called the bomb squad to have it disposed because we didn't have a way to dispose of it, said Mayotte. The Cambridge Police Bomb Squad said the fuse was missing, so it wouldn't have gone off even if it could. 
We could have left it down here for another 29 years and nothing would have happened, said Mayhart. And over to Thomas. Thanks, Bob. This week's Beacon Hill Roll Call by Bob Katzen. First two ballot measures. Repeal transgender rights, definitely on ballot. Repeals the new law that prohibits discrimination against transgender people in public accommodations by adding gender identity to existing Massachusetts law, which already prohibits discrimination in public accommodations on the basis of age, race, creed, color, national orientation, uh, excuse me, national origin, sexual orientation, sex, religion, and marital status. Limit the number of patients per nurse, possibly on ballot if enough signatures are collected. Limits how many patients can be assigned to each registered nurse in Massachusetts hospitals and certain other healthcare facilities. The maximum number of patients per registered nurse would vary by the type of unit and level of care. Convert sexual orientation, House Bill 4664. The House, 137 to 14, approved and sent to the Senate a bill prohibiting psychiatrists, psychologists, and other health care providers from attempting to change the sexual orientation or gender identity of anyone under 18. Conversion therapy exposes the person to a stimulus while simultaneously subjecting him or her to some form of discomfort. The idea of conversion therapy is that there is something wrong with being LGBTQ and that a licensed medical professional can eliminate these feelings through practices like hypnosis, aversive conditioning, or inducing nausea, said Representative Jeffrey Sanchez, Democrat of Boston. He continues, the reality of the matter is that it has been proven ineffective, is contrary to medical research, and subjects young people to the risk of suicide and other serious psychological harms. We should validate our youth for who they are and not try to shame them by subjecting them to harmful therapies and antiquated social norms. Max? Thank you, Thomas. A Bargain Driven by the Ballot by Katie Lennon, a recap and analysis of the week in state government. July 1st shaped up to be a pretty good beach day, which was good because despite what the calendar said, it wasn't the day pot shops throw their doors open to 21 and over consumers, and it wouldn't be the day the fiscal 2019 budget takes effect. Cannabis advocates, budget watchers, and anyone who's not on the six, committee com six conference committees still trying to hash out deals might as well take their vigils to Cape Ann or Cape Cod and wait it out in the sunshine. But don't let what didn't happen last week, the emergence of a $41 billion spending plan for the fiscal year that was just days away, the issuance of retail marijuana licenses by a date regulators have targeted, distract you from all that did. A $5 billion temporary budget signed June 28th bought Ways and Means chairs Karen Spilka and Jeffrey Sanchez and their teams some time and foreclosed the risk of a government shutdown that some other states are facing. New Jersey will think of you from our state beaches. The running theory that the House and Senate were close enough together on the red flag gun bill that they could work, out, work their differences out quickly without a conference committee proved half right, 
when the conferees appointed June 25th got a deal to Ch Governor Charlie Baker by the 28th. The Republican governor has said he's, quote, conceptually, unquote, in favor of the idea of extreme risk protection orders that allows the temporary removal of guns from someone a family or household member and a judge deemed dangerous. Baker has also said before that he, quote, conceptually, unquote, backs raising the state's tobacco age to 21. That concept could soon work its way into the general laws now that the Senate has, now that the Senate has joined the House in passing a bill that pairs the three-year age hike with new regulations on e-cigarettes. With the stroke of a pen, five of them actually, including one that seemed to run out of ink, Baker on June 28th essentially rewrote November's ballot, knocking off three questions with one mega law that will affect workers throughout the state and prevent him from needing to step out of his carefully tended middle ground to take a stance on the minimum wage or the sales tax rate. Another comforting bit of news last week for the governor's campaign advisors, nearly a month after their party's convention, 61% of likely vote Democratic primary voters still don't have a candidate of choice to try to oust Baker from the corner office, according to a WBUR poll. Most of those polled took a pass on the two Democrats competing in the September 4th primary, Jay Gonzalez and Bob Massey. As he often is when he signs major legislation, Baker was flanked by Democratic lawmakers as he approved the bill that will phase in a $15 minimum wage, phase out Sunday premium pay for retail workers, establish a paid family and medical leave program financed through a new payroll tax, and enshrine an annual sales tax holiday as state law. A path to a $15 minimum wage, overwhelming, overwhelming legislative approval for a bill restricting gun access, and word that swing vote Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy would retire, clearing the way for a second appointee for Donald, President Donald Trump, and a more solid conservative majority on the bench. High court decisions that upheld the president's travel ban found crisis pregnancy centers need not provide information about abortion and dealt a blow to unions, while lawmakers here turned their attention to preventing discrimination by corporations and to a slew of issues affecting gay, transgender, and non-binary youth. Speaker Robert DeLeo essentially put out an RFP to labor leaders, encouraging them to come forward with ideas on how the state could respond to the Janus versus AFS-CME ruling that public employees cannot be forced to pay fees or dues to a union they don't belong to. A working group helmed by top DeLeo deputies is throwing its weight behind a Representative Michael Day bill that aims to prevent corporations from raising religion to win exemptions from non-discrimination laws. The 17-month-old bill earned a second look after the Supreme Court ruled in favor of a Colorado baker who refused a wedding cake to a gay couple. The House on June 27th passed a ban on conversion therapy that seeks to change the gender identity or sexual orientation of minors. And the next day, the Senate voted to allow driver's license and state ID applicants to mark their gender as X rather than male or female. Senators also signed off on a bill they said would make it easier for homeless youths to get state IDs, a measure they called particularly important to the LGBTQ population that has higher rates of youth homelessness. In Somerville on June 25th, 
state and federal officials did find some common ground, which they promptly broke to kick off the start of the long-awaited Green Line extension, signaling along the way that they really mean it this time. State lawmakers had already rebuffed some of Baker's health mass health reforms, and the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services followed their lead last week in rejecting a waiver request from the governor. Baker's Health and Human Services wing was disappointed that its request to control rising pharmacy cost costs were not approved, but officials said they believed that both the Centers of Medicare and Medicaid Services and Massachusetts still believe in working toward lowering drug costs for public insurance programs. And Baker, for his part, thinks there's still room for a bipartisan health care cost control effort on Beacon Hill. He's also hoping lawmakers will find room in the end-of-session traffic for his priority bills addressing the state's opioid and housing crisis. Lieutenant Governor Karen Polito came before the Judiciary Committee June 26th asking the panel to endorse a Baker bill establishing mandatory life without parole for child rapists who use force against multiple victims. And back to you, Bob. Thanks, Max. An editorial titled Musings by Edward K. Edward A. Kajarian. <clears throat> the incinerator site. Does anyone else think it's strange that all of the suggestions for the use of the incinerator site, little or no revenue for the town is being considered? No one has suggested a developer to sell the property. One of the town's primary, primary needs reflected in, in, in every study is for housing options for our seniors. An over 55 development on the building portion of this site could easily accommodate 50 plus units, generate $500,000 in tax revenue every year for our schools and roads with little or no cost or exposure for the town. Sidewalks. It has been six years since School Street was redone, but without doing the sidewalks or curbing due to, their, due to them policy of the selectmen. I wrote several times about the need to do the sidewalks curbs on this main thoroughfare, which has sidewalks to Burbank, Chennery, and the high school, and commuters walking to several bus lines. I ask that even doing one side of the street be considered, all to no avail. As a person of conviction, I pay, I pay to have my curbing installed at my house. CPA funds, time to repeal. The town slush fund has in the past funded some controversial projects and this year is no exception. $780,000 for a six foot wide walking path at Grove Street Playground should sound the death knell and begin the long process of reducing and ultimately phasing out this additional tax on Belmont citizens. There are plenty of places to safely walk in Belmont without putting an asphalt strip around the playground. To spend four years worth of sidewalk repairs uh, and replacement to create a paved path within the playground is madness. To imply that the long-awaited batting cages are part of this project is a smokescreen. The funds for the batting cages are coming from recreation raised funds. Indeed, the 35000 
those expended to redesign the park could have paid for the batting cages. The study option was basically leave the park alone, but included the walking path. A close second to the madness is $200,000 as a stopgap stabilization of the McLean barn, a structure that has seen no maintenance work for years as it has been left to fall apart. SOP in Belmont, little or no annual maintenance. I guess we just don't have any pressure on the budget or more pressing projects that these ridiculous projects will receive almost a million dollars. Police, DPW, high school, roads, sidewalks. Hmm. Since the town appears to have money to spare, how about letting seniors, how about letting getting serious about addressing our taxes and helping our seniors? It is time to create a commercial tax rate. I don't want to hear the argument that we have little commercial property. The Center, Waverly Square, Star, Cushing Square, and the Bradford, plus blocks of commercial spaces. We have plenty of large landlords, and we should include non-owner-occupied rental properties as commercial property and tax them as such. We could address our seniors' needs by providing a tax break based on a sliding scale of number of years paying taxes in Belmont and age. Many communities provide tax discounts for seniors and owner-occupied property. We have a lot of very bright people who could make this work. And over to my colleague, Thomas. Thanks, Bob. Belmont Village residents lose power due to explosion from heat. According to Belmont Light, at approximately 5.45 p.m. on June 29th, a small explosion caused by the extreme heat occurred on a piece of electrical equipment at the intersection of Thomas Street and Gordon Terrace. The result was a minor power outage experienced by customers in the area of Belmont Village with extensive damage to other critical equipment. To repair the damaged equipment, it was necessary to conduct a planned power outage for the area on June 30th, beginning at 5.45 a.m. Approximately 125 customers were without electric service during the planned outage. With temperatures rising over 100 degrees, Belmont light crews worked diligently to make repairs to the system. However, the intense heat caused delays in restoration estimates as some equipment became unusable. By 1 p.m., all customers were restored to full power. Belmont Light does not expect any additional issues to arise at this time. And back to you, Bob. Along with my colleagues, Thomas and Max, we thank you for listening to the Talking News and hope you have enjoyed the show. We will return next week for another edition of Local News Happenings around Belmont.